Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. We are glad that you are with us. We are in Second uh, Kings, as we wrap up uh, study of the Kings. We left off in chapter eleven. Now, to uh, back up, uh, yeah, you back up to chapter verse one again here, back there. Kind of take a running stab at this again, uh, so we get a little feel for it. Jehu has just come through. He's the new king that Elisha anointed, told the other prophets to anoint as king. He comes through. He brings judgment on the king of Israel, kills him. Brings judgment on the king of Judah, uh, kill, king kills him. Um, and then Athaliah, the mother of one of the kings, got really mad and he went psycho crazy. She went psycho crazy. We pick it up at chapter 11. And it says, when Athaliah, the mother of... Sounds like a cough. Ahaziah saw that her son was dead. She proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. So she turned around and started to wipe out the line of David. Now, this is a big deal. This is Satan striking out. uh, And she's angry and in vengeance for what uh, the judgment of God had brought. You know, the devil just doesn't lay down, man. He'll keep coming back at you. So she seeks out to wipe out the royal line. Now, this is problematic because God promised that David's line would not be extinguished and the Messiah would come through the uh, the line of David. So she's killing them all. It says, but now it says, but uh, Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram and sister of Ahaziah, (laughs) took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered. So they take one guy and they hide him. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom to hide from Athaliah. So he was not killed. He remained hidden with his nurse in the temple of the Lord for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. So this, you know, granny goes crazy. She seizes power and now she's running everything. And as far as she knows, she's killed off all the descendants of David and, uh, and not aware that there's still one king. I mean, this is just like some Hollywood novel here, but uh, this actually happened. And they're hiding the boy. Well, in the seventh year of Jehoiada, in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent for the commanders of units of a hundred, the Kerites and the guards, and had them brought to him at the temple of the Lord. He made a covenant with them and put them under oath at the temple of the Lord. He showed them the king's son. So this is a big deal. He says, look, there is an heir to the king. Uh, And he commanded them saying, this is what you are to do. You who are uh, in the three companies that are going on duty on the Sabbath, a third of you guarding the royal palace, a third at the sure gate, and a third at the gate behind the guard, uh, who take turns guarding the temple, and you who are in the other two companies that normally go off on Sabbath duty are all to guard the temple for the king. So he basically gets all, he's basically organizing this thing. This guy, this guy, everybody's going to be here and you're going to be here and we need to protect the king. This is going to be the king. Station yourselves around the king, each man with his weapon in his hand. Anyone who approaches your ranks must be put to death. Stay close to the king wherever he goes. Well, the commanders of units of a hundred did just as Jehoiada, the priest, ordered. Each one took his men, those who were going on duty on the Sabbath, and those who were going off duty, and came to Jehoiada, the priest. Then he gave the commanders the spears and shields that had belonged to King David, and that were in the temple of the Lord. Well, the guards, each with his weapon in his hand, stationed themselves around the king near the altar and the temple from the south side to the north side of the temple. Well, Jehoiada brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. Da, da, da. 
he presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. And they anointed him. And the people clapped their hands and shouted, Long live the king! Now, the kid is seven years old. And uh, why he moved at this point and didn't wait longer, I don't know. But he felt moved to, we need to take uh, control now. So they basically take this seven-year-old child who is of the line of David, the only remaining one at this point, anoints him as king, crowns him as king, and they all start clapping and celebrating and shouting, Long live the king. When Athaliah heard the noise made by the guards and the people, she went to the people at the temple of the Lord. She looked, and there was the king standing by the pillar, as the custom was. The officers and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Then Athaliah tore her robes and called out, Treason! Treason! Granny is mad. All right? I mean, she's a mean granny in the first place. She's killing all kinds of people. She takes over power. And they see that they took this little punk kid and crowned him as king. And she starts yelling treason. Well, it was treasonous to her. She was queen at the time. And they're having this insurrection. And then Jehoiada, the priest, ordered the commanders of units of 100 who were in charge of the troops, bring her out between the ranks. Get her out of there. Bring her here. And to put to the sword anyone, and put to the sword anyone who follows her. For the priests said she must not be put to death in the temple of the Lord. They basically wanted to get her out of there. So they seized her as she reached the place where the horses enter the palace grounds. And there she was put to death. They killed Granny. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people. That they would be the Lord's people. And he also made a covenant between the king and the people. All the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They smashed the altars and idols to pieces and killed Matin, the priest of Baal, in front of the altar. So they go and tear down the temple of Baal. Apparently, they rebuilt the temple of Baal. Because you remember the last time we read about the temple of Baal, they turned it, tore it down and turned it into a latrine. Everybody was pooping on Baal. <clears throat> so they must have rebuilt something because seven years later here, they're tearing it down again. And then they killed the priest of Baal. This is not a good time for all the Baal people. The Jehoiada, the priest, posted guards at the temple of the Lord. He took with him the commanders of hundreds, the Karaites, uh, the guards, and all the people of the land. And together they brought the king down from the temple of the Lord and went into the palace, entering by way of the gate of the guards. The king then took his place on the royal throne, and all the people of the land rejoiced. And the city was quiet, because Athaliah... The wicked witch had been slain with the sword at the palace. And Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. In the seventh year, chapter 12, verse 1, in the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. His mother's name was Zibia. She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. All the years Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. However, there's always a however. The priests, the high places, however, were not removed. And the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. We talked about this last week or something. I don't know what these guys, for some reason, they just couldn't follow through. They would come and they would straighten things out and they would start honoring God. And they'd start worshiping God. And they'd start obeying the Bible, but they still 
who would not be able to follow through and get rid of things that were causing people to stumble and to fall into sin. And even Joash, this next guy that comes along, he starts at seven years of age. He rules uh, for 40 years, honors God the whole time, except he still didn't get rid of these places where these guys would go out and keep worshiping these false gods. Now, this whole thing is rather fascinating when you think about it, that they would bow down, celebrate, and yield to the authority of a seven-year-old. And, uh, but uh, when you start to understand Eastern culture, uh, it, it makes a lot more sense. Uh, in Eastern culture, and I've said this to you many times before, that in Eastern culture, people understand that authority was not based on what you did. It was based on who you were. Okay, uh, the king was the king just because he was the king. Uh, it didn't matter if he was a great king or a pig of a king. He's still the king. And they would um, serve and respect these men, oftentimes out of fear, but, <laughs> but still, uh, regardless of really their standing one way or the other. We still see that in, uh, of course, over here we don't have kings and stuff like that, but in you know, uh, in the Middle East and the, some in Europe, still England, you know, they have the kings and the royal family and stuff like that. The only reason these people are given all this power and all this glory and all this accolades is for no other reason that they, that they are the next one in line. That's it. Very strange from an American point of view to understand because in this country, <coughs> we're not big on kings. <laughs> we don't like kings. We don't like people. If anything in this country, we resent people who are given positions of authority because of who they are. True or not true. You got somebody at some office or somewhere and all of a sudden the boss's son comes to work and suddenly the boss's son starts getting taken to the front of the line even if he earns it. They don't like it. People don't like it. Again, it's an American thing. Um, the reality is that and the reason I'm even pointing this out is because when it comes to spiritual authority, you have to understand something. Spiritual authority according to God's word is more based on the eastern model than on the western model. In other words, a person is given authority, God anoints them because of their calling and whatever God's called them. This is because of who they are, not necessarily because of what they did to earn it. You don't necessarily earn the gifts and callings of God. Does this make sense to people? Okay? You can't just rise up in a church and just go, I'm a better than the other guy and I'm a better leader and you know, eventually climb to the top and, and be pastor, that kind of thing. It's generally not the way it works. Uh, people sense and recognize giftings and anointings in people's lives. And then they honor that person and they recognize their gifts. And then, you know, from there they grow and mature and blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> um, this can be helpful for a lot of women who struggle with the concept that the man is the head of the home. You know, they're supposed to show respect to them. Why should I show respect? He's an idiot. He's a moron. Why should I show respect to him? He hasn't earned it. If he earns it, then I respect him. But in reality... He is, the Bible says, the head of the home, responsible for the home. Not because of what he's done or not done. He hasn't earned it or not earned it. It's just because of who he is. And God has established 
the man as the head of the home. Say, so, well, I don't like that. Well, get mad at God. You know, I know this isn't very politically correct. And I think a lot of it has been abused over the years. And no one's more about knocking down the abuse and pushing back the abuse than me. If you've heard me talk for very long on this at all. But it still does not erase the fact that under normal circumstances, the man is the head of the home. Because no other reason than God said so. And if you want to know why, it goes all the way back to the fall in the Garden of Eden. Sounds strange even to me. But it's what the Bible teaches, and it teaches it very, very clearly. It was part of the curse that God brought on Adam and Eve. And part of the curse for Eve is that she's going to want Adam, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> Adam going, wait, what kind of curse is that? Uh, and that he would have the headship over her. All right, so again, this has been abused horribly today, and People got, you know, there's a lot of guys who think, well, they can tell their wives to do whatever they want to do. And women got to put up with all kinds of nonsense. That's baloney. That is not true. That's not what the Bible says. You got someone who's acted badly, out of control. A woman has every right, in fact, an obligation to stand up to the big fat jerk. And the church ought to be there helping her to call bad behavior what it is. The Bible does not say women have to put up with unlimited crap from egotistical, self-centered, narcissistic men. And I got an amen out of that one. All right. Having said that, however, if he is not a destructive, narcissistic, evil man, yes, the Bible does say you need to respect your husband as the head of your home. Not a biggest amen out of that one, but, uh, but, it's, but it's the truth. Why? Why? Just because God says it, okay? It's based on who you are, not on what you do. In our culture, all authority is based on what you do. Almost all of it. Uh, because we, uh, we had a war 200 years ago to fight against kings. And our forefathers who established this country took guns out and they blew each other's brains out and fought blood, sweat, and tears to get rid of kings. And I don't think we're going to go back anytime soon, even though it's been 200 years. We are a stubborn people. We are an independent people. Um, it's not necessarily 100% biblical, but uh, we won't get into all of that. But it is what it is, okay? And that's fine. You know, every, in fact, our thing is so crazy. Every two years we go through elections around here, which is just a little insane, isn't it? About the time you get rid of this nonsense, here comes again and all the ads and all these things. Why is this? Because our country was set up, ain't nobody going to have power if they haven't earned it. And if they haven't earned it, we're going to throw them out of their butts. Now, no one's more for throwing these guys out of their butts than me. So I'm glad for the situation. I think most of them in there ought to get thrown out. Somebody say amen. amen. But just psycho crazy people. But don't get me started on that. <clears throat> Having said that, that's fine in a country. That's fine in a nation. That's fine in a company, whatever. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, it's more the other model. Who is this person? What's the anointing upon their life? What is the blessing in their life? What, you know, the husband, head of the home, all that kind of stuff based on who they are. Um, you've heard me use this analogy many times. It wasn't wise men from the West who came to worship the baby Jesus. First of all, I don't think we have any, but they, they came from the East, from a culture that understood authority is not based on what you do. It's based on who you are. 
Okay, right? Stop and think about this. Incredibly wealthy men. These guys showed up with gold, silver, I mean, you know, the whole incense, myrrh, all the stuff. It wasn't like they showed up with a gold watch. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like they showed up with a little tiny, you know, a little something you put around your neck. You know, look at the gold little necklace. When these guys showed up after traveling for two years to get there, these guys were loaded up the wazoo. And they dumped on Mary and Joseph's doorstep a boatload of money in gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Trust me, when Jesus was growing up, he didn't worry about making the rent payment. All right? I'm serious. When these guys showed up, they were set for life. They were set for life. And these men came and they got down and they offered these gifts and they worshipped what many Bible scholars believe was probably about a two-year-old boy. Unlike most Christmas stories that you see, the wise men showed up Christmas Eve the, the night he was born. That's not true. It wasn't until probably about two years later that they finally got there. They started seeing the they saw his star in the east. It wasn't like they hopped on Delta and got there right away. <laughs> you know, things were a little slower back then. So they thought, ooh, let's go. It took them almost two years to get there. And they bowed down and they worshipped. You talk about a seven-year-old. How do you do this to a two-year-old? Now, in a Western culture, because we can't, we, you wouldn't come and do that. We'd walk in and say, why he's still pooping his pants? What's the deal here? When he does something, let me know. I'll come back. That's the way we think. Even to this day, Christian Western culture and Christian Eastern culture, their songs are very different. Often in Christian Eastern culture, the songs are about praising God for who he is. The majesty of his glory. In Western culture, overwhelmingly our songs are more about let's praise God for what he's done. See? Everything's about what you do, what you do, what you do, what you do. And we focus on what you do. Now, Jesus had both. He was the son of God and he did incredible things. So, I mean, you, you worship him from both sides of it. But you just have to understand when it comes to spiritual authority, um, it's more that model than the other. And as for um, people who hate, you know, they call it nepotism. You know, when you have uh, people in the company that grow up, uh, you know, and it's this dad and and his son gets the job and all this kind of stuff even in the church lots of churches like this church oftentimes their sons my son and my son-in-law Ross the worship leader uh, we give them positions in the church now um, uh, a lot of people have problems with that but the reality is people if you look at really successful families um, it's, it's, it, it, the ones who really build something are the ones who pass it from father to son to son now this is something that used to be very proud in years gone past. You'd often see businesses, so-and-so and sons, right? So-and-so. You hardly ever see that anymore. Why? Because everybody hates that concept so much today that they can't stand it. And they get very, very uncomfortable with it. Um, but the reality, uh, oftentimes there's, there's, there can be a real blessing, uh, uh, even in particular families. If you look at the, uh, in the New Testament, it was uh, this, this, anointing on this family uh, well first of all the Old Testament we have Abraham Isaac and Jacob right grandfather great father great father or father and kid I mean it's all of that it wasn't Abraham Bob and Raul alright they were all related to you we see this line and stuff like that even in the New Testament 
John the Baptist comes and anoints Jesus. Who is John the Baptist? The cousin of Jesus. Goes on. And when the church got established in the New Testament, he wasn't an apostle. But do you know who, who does it say in the, New, in the book of Acts became the head of the church in Jerusalem? Is his, his brother, his half-brother. You know, I mean, this, it's, it's, you see this consistently in that kind of thing. To have opportunity. Now, if you're just giving people opportunities for no other reason than they're related to you, then that's not good. You know, they need to really know this stuff. They really need to experience God and really know it, particularly in the church type thing. First of all, Ross and Phil aren't given any huge amounts of power and stuff like this. And two things. One is they have been brought up in this. My son cut his teeth on this. He knows my values and stuff. I don't have a problem communicating what I want to my son. He gets it. But he's also talented on his own right. He knows what he's doing. Ross is a pretty good worship leader, wouldn't you say? I mean, you know, it's not like he's some up moron up here going, you know, who can't sing. I mean, you, you can hire the guy just based on the fact that he can sing anyway. So it's not like these guys aren't talented and capable. They're very talented and capable. But, and because of who they are and because of my connection with them and knowing who they are and knowing their character, it's an easy for me th- thing for me to plug them in just as workers in the church. They don't have unfettered authority in the church like some king or something. We don't do that. But, uh, you know, sometimes people are just very, very against any kind of, you know, the nepotism like it's some kind of evil, evil thing. Not really. Certainly not from a biblical viewpoint anyway. So, what it's worth. So here they are, seven years old. Now, I don't know. It doesn't say. It, it's, it seems highly unlikely that a seven-year-old is really making any decisions of great consequence. Wouldn't you think that'd be kind of odd? You know, my guess is he's probably got all kinds of people who are watching him and directing him, and they must have some kind of uh, power and stuff. You know, uh, it's, it's highly unlikely that he just, at seven years old, decided that whatever he said was the rule of the land. I mean, if that were the case, everybody probably just got, you know. Lots of candy. I rule it. I'm king. All right. And so anyway, now Joash, so he's growing up now. And uh, Joash says to the priests, and verse 4, Collect all the money that's brought as sacred offerings to the temple of the Lord. The money collected in the census, the money received from personal vows, and the money brought voluntarily into the temple. And let every priest receive the money from one of the treasuries. And let it be used to repair whatever damage is found in the temple. So he wants to rebuild the temple. He's got a heart for God. Even though there's the however, he still didn't do everything. He did a lot. And he was fighting for God. And he wanted to rebuild the temple. And wanted to honor God. He got all the priests together and said, Okay, I want you to start taking money. And we're going to rebuild the temple. Well, they started taking the money. (laughs) But they didn't rebuild the temple. Dirty rats. So... Verse 6, by the 23rd year, uh, the priest still had not repaired the temple. Therefore, King Joash summoned, summoned Jehoiada, the priest, and the other priests, and asked them, What's up? Why aren't you repairing the damage done to the temple? Quit taking money from your treasuries, but hand it over for repairing the, temp, uh, uh, for repairing the temple. And then the priests agreed they wouldn't collect any more money. Uh, and the people, and that they would not repair the temple themselves. They basically got out of it because they were messing up. They were happy to take the money, but they were diverted the money to other things. Talk about a misappropriation of funds. They were all guilty of this. So Jehoiada had to step in and jerk the slack out of these guys. 
And then Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in its lid. And he placed it beside the altar on the right side as one enters the temple of the Lord. And the priest who guarded the te- uh, entrance put into the chest all the money that was brought to the temple of the Lord. So they basically made, made a big piggy bank. And uh, they were throwing money in. Whenever they saw that there was a large amount of money, it was full. Uh, they got the royal secretary and the high priest came. They counted the money that it brought to the temple of the Lord. They put it into bags. And when the amount had been determined, they gave the money to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. And with it, they paid those who worked on the temple of the Lord. The carpenters, the builders, the masons, the stonecutters. They purchased timber and dressed stone for the repair of the temple of the Lord. And met all the other expenses of restoring the temple. So they basically just got these priests out of there because they kept messing up and, and diverting funds in places they shouldn't have been doing that. Shame on them. So they'd get it. He made this big piggy bank. It would fill up. They'd get these guys and they would give it to those supervising the work. And then it went straight to the workers. Okay? The money brought into the temple was not spent for making silver basins, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls. All these things are articles that they used in worship in the church, in, in, the, in the temple. Uh, trumpets or any articles of gold or silver. It wasn't used for any of that. All the money was paid to the workmen. It was all supposed to go to those uh, who were going to repair the temple. Uh, They did not require an accounting from those to whom they gave the money to pay the workers because they acted with complete honesty. I don't know how they would know that if they didn't have any accounting, but that's what it says. Um, The money from the guilt offerings and sin offerings was not brought into the temple of the Lord. That was brought to the priests. So the priests still got their money from their offerings. But then, all this time, they are taking this stuff, and they are honoring God, and they're rebuilding the temple. All right, verse 17. Well, about this time, Haziel, king of Aram, remember him? This is the guy Elisha looked and started weeping, said, ah, you're going to be killing so many of my people, you know. He saw what was coming, because God used this king to bring judgment on Jerusalem because of their sins. About this time, Hazael, king of Aram, went up and attacked Gath and captured it. And then he turned to attack Jerusalem. Um, it doesn't say, one can easily connect the dots, that maybe this is God's judgment on them again because he didn't take care of these other things. Again, you have to understand, God is a holy God. Oftentimes we think, it doesn't really matter if I mess up with God in this area because I'm pretty good here. Okay, it doesn't work that way. It really doesn't. I know a lot of people think that judgment day is basically going to be a balancing of the scales. You know, if you're, okay, he's a little good here. Not he was bad there. He's good. Not bad, bad, bad. Oh, he's a pretty good. And you're hoping that you can somehow balance it out. And just so you're good, it's a little bit better than you're bad. It's going to be okay. No. That's how you might figure weights when you're buying something but that's not how it works in the kingdom of God God, we talked about this last week God expects total and complete surrender from us who serve him now that's not to say we're perfect that's not to say that we don't make mistakes the Bible says if you sin we have a place where we can go we can ask God to forgive us of our sins to cleanse us from our our unrighteousness that's why Jesus died on the cross all that stuff but that's not what I'm talking about what I'm talking about are people who willfully continue to do something wrong and then justify it. They don't really repent of it. They're not sorry about it. They think, it doesn't matter, it's okay. Because I'm pretty good here. I, I go to church. I give money to offering. Uh, you know, I, 
I, I help out at the, you know, passing communion or whatever it is, you know, I'm, I'm having sex with my boyfriend, but that's okay. We feel good about that. But we, but this is okay because no, 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 no. Well, I'm doing this and it's okay, but you know, I lie sometimes, but it's okay to lie a little bit. No, goodness gracious people. We got to get this right. Don't do what these guys often did. They did pretty good, except they, this was okay. They let, they let this slide. Stupid thing. They let this slide, and it would get themselves in trouble. And instead of being under great blessings of God, now all of a sudden, here comes the judgment of God again on these guys. So here comes Hazel. Well, Joash, the king of Judah... He took all the sacred objects dedicated by his fathers, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, and the gifts he himself had dedicated, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and of the royal palace. And he sent it to Haziel, king of Aram, who then withdrew from Jerusalem. So basically, he bought him off, but at a great price. Here comes this judgment, and to come, he financially took a huge hit. It says all the gold. All of it. After he paid off Haziel, they had nothing. And hard to, had to start again from scratch. Oh man, what a drag. What a high price to pay. Then in verse 19, he says, for all the, As for the other events of the reign of Joash and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the king of Judah? <clears throat> and his officials conspired against him, and then they assassinated him at Beth Milo. On the road down to Silla or Sia, however you say it, I have no idea. The officials who murdered him were Jezebad, son of Shimeath, and Jehazabad, son of Shomer. He died and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. So again, he started out so well. He still didn't quite follow through, even though he did all these wonderful things for the temple. The judgment of God comes, and then eventually he is slain being assassinated by his own officials, which, again, very, very sad. And that is Joash. Now, from here on out, uh, we're going to take a look. I might skip over a whole lot of this stuff now because, and I'll double-check this before we come back next week. Um, Now, I'll go because it shows here where Elisha died. We should finish that out. So maybe we'll go another chapter or two. But then much past that, it's this king, and there's this king, and there's that king, and he's a pig, and this king's a pig, and this king's a pig, and that king's a bigger pig than the other pig, and this is the biggest pig of them all, and on and on and on, and just keeps talking about these kings who are just a mess. And I don't really want to read it all because it's so boring. Okay? So we'll probably jump ahead, and we'll get to what happens when the judgment of God, God finally has had it up to here. He's not going to take it anymore. And Israel is basically exiled. And there is no more Israel. And we'll read about that. And it kind of sets up. Uh, then what happens, then the attention turns to Judah. Remember, we got Israel and Judah in the south. There's two kingdoms. And then Judah basically does the same thing. That's when Isaiah shows up and he's prophesying against the king of Judah, trying to get them to repent. Nobody's listening. Uh, we'll take a look at maybe some of the highlights there. Uh, and then God brings judgment, and then the fall of Jerusalem, and then they're taken all into captivity. That will set up some of the other key uh, events in the Bible that we read, you know, like Daniel, uh, you know, and the lines and some of them. So we might jump around. We're not going to go ahead and read every single verse 
throughout the Old Testament. I'm surprised we got this far. But uh, we're kind of getting to the, uh, to the end of this history um, and see what happens when they go into uh, captivity and then how they come back. And then eventually everything gets set up and they didn't wait. Several hundred years passes and then the Messiah comes. And uh, so we're going to kind of jump through that in pieces and then get back into the New Testament and start studying that. And that's the end of that. See you next week.